Hello and welcome to Resonant Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with the artists, labels and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. My name's Mark Smith and I'm the tech editor at Resonant Advisor. This week's exchange is with Dusky. Within five years, Nick Harriman and Alfie Granger Howe have grown from music hobbyists into one of the most popular acts in club music. Their break came when Swamp 81's Loafer played a track off their first release on his Rinse FM show. But nowadays, they're on a major label and collaborating with the likes of Wiley and Gary Newman. And in conversation with RA's Carlos Hawthorne, the duo described the challenges and processes behind their highly anticipated second album, Alta. As always, you can find our full archive of exchanges at residentadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at ra-exchange. The exchange with Dusky is up next. Sitting here and like the album announcement literally came out today. How does it feel to kind of have it, the news finally out there, like in full? Yeah, it feels good. Yeah, relief. Yeah, it's just good to have a point where it's like, okay, now we can't make any more changes. You know, it's like, okay, it's done now. It's starting. You know, obviously only a couple of singles are out there at this point, but it's you know, it, yeah, it's, it's done and dusted. So it's, it is quite a nice feeling. But, um, yeah. When did the process like? What was the kind of first day? How far back does it go? There's actually one track on there that probably the idea actually formed like years and years ago around when we were doing our first album. So probably about five years ago, really. Like it's completely changed since. But yeah, I mean, since then we have just been sort of setting aside ideas that we feel are appropriate to album compared to just you know EPs. Um, so yeah, it's been a it's been a long while. Well, it's just been an idea that's like been germinating for for a long time. Something you've had kind of in the back of your mind as a, an objective. Yeah, I mean, I think the actual, you know, from the point where we decided we're going to do an album to up to now has been about two years. But the way we work is we have lots of different ideas on the go at the same time. So we'll start an idea and we'll think, oh, actually, I've got that little part from this track, you know, however old it is, might be five years old, might be a couple of months old. And then we kind of mix and match stuff to build up new songs. So the album kind of process proper was two years, but some of the ideas and bits and bobs have been, you know, evolving over a long period of time. I mean, how do you reflect back over the, the whole process? There have been some kind of difficult points, but I think in general it's been enjoyable, yeah. It's nice to be able to write music which isn't, which isn't strictly for the club, um, which is obviously kind of what most dance music producers, that's kind of part of the reason why they do albums, because you can express yourself in a slightly different format. But there were difficulties with, you know, working, partnering with a major label, which we've never done before. And um, everything that's involved with that in terms of A&R 
which, you know, I think we were kind of putting pressure on ourselves rather than putting pressure on us. They were quite hands off about the whole thing and let us do what we want. But um, you have that feeling in the back of your mind where they just, you know, they're kind of notorious for just being like, oh, actually, you know, we'll just bin your album. We own all the music. So that's kind of niggling in your mind <laughs> in the process. Like, oh, you know, I don't want to put all this work into this music that someone else owns. And then, um, and then they just chuck it in the bin kind of thing. Because up until now, we've always owned everything we've done. Um, I mean, was it an easy decision to partner with the major? No, it, well, really, it wasn't yeah. an easy decision, no. I think, like, I mean, there, there were, like, things in the contract that we had that the music would eventually revert back to us if they didn't, you know, if they didn't release it after a certain amount of time. So we kind of had that as a get-out-of-jail-free thing. But it was still a, a tricky decision, you know, because there's still the risk you can, you know, lose a lot of creative control, you know, so it's something we we didn't take lightly. But um, so far it's worked out well, as you know, as Nick says... You know, we we kept all the creative control. They didn't really get in our way. So, yeah, seems all right. So, I mean, what was the vision for the album when you guys set out? Sometimes when we're writing music, we try not to think too much about, you know, like how it's going to be received and even how it, you know, how it might work with other bits of music that we've done. So there wasn't really a kind of a concept from the very beginning. It kind of, the concept became clearer and clearer as we went on. But essentially, it's just kind of um, a representation of, kind of sounds that we're interested in at the moment, kind of things that relate to the dusky stuff that's come before, um, but also incorporating some other different kind of inspirations, different influences from different genres. I mean, it, yeah, it's always been quite a loose concept, really. But you were keen for it not to just be an album of club tracks? Yeah, absolutely. I think, I mean, all the tracks are like, well, with the exception is one kind of beatless one, but I think everything else does have elements of kind of being for dance floor. You can work on a dance floor, but yeah, we wanted it to be something that would work equally well on the dance floor, but also just listening at home kind of thing, you know, and that's basically, I think, what all the tracks have in common from our point of view. Did it feel like, did that feel challenging? You know, because I've, I've heard the album and um, yeah, I mean, some of them are kind of songs rather than your kind of classic club tracks. I mean, was that, did that feel like something you'd never really done before? Yeah, it was definitely a new thing. We haven't, how we've worked in the past with vocals has always just been much more sample based. So it was um, definitely a big learning curve getting vocalists into the studio and the whole process of writing and, you know, trying not to fall into the kind of standard songwriting cliches, but it's pretty much impossible because everything's a cliche now you just have to make a decision like do you like it or not yeah. and kind of let it stew for a while and if you think like yeah actually this is this is all right you just have to put it out there and see how people react like you can't you know you can't overthink it too much you just gotta do what you're happy with and then put it out there and that's it yeah. so but you know trying to get to that point where the vocals we had the vocals on there that we were actually happy with took quite a while yeah. yeah a lot of like kind of discussions about just nuances of syllables and just stuff that you just pedantics which are really just unnecessary but I suppose it helped us get through the process a bit part of the challenge of working with vocalists must be that you know you're working with an artist who you know yeah they're an artist in their own right and they're doing their own thing but you're also trying to bring them into kind of your project and ultimately it is your your work so the kind of push and pull of that must be yeah I think we were quite careful about who we chose to work with though so 
we had faith in the people that we decided to work with that they were going to do something we would like so we didn't try and force them to do a certain thing you know, we went through plenty of demos with, with people that we thought would work and they just didn't end up working we didn't go back to them and say like oh we want you to do it like this we're just like you know if it's not working naturally it's not working so the people that we did end up um, having on the album was quite a natural process we were happy for them to do their thing and we didn't have to make that many changes at all to what they had written apart from you know getting in there and trying to make it as best as we could with them on their terms not wasn't us saying you know we want it to be a certain way and were there like collaborative processes in terms of like they were in the studio with you it was like face to face it's a bit of a variety of uh kind of uh the gary newman thing was done remotely because he lives in la um and then solomon gray they were in the studio pedestrian was in the studio wiley wasn't in the studio <laughs> i think he's quite hard to get into the studio um, he lives in Cyprus, so that was just um, all done remotely as well. How did that one come about? We had the idea. We, we, we'd made the track and we were playing it out just as an instrumental. And uh, I don't know, we got talking, I think, with um, some of the management stuff and just thinking about how it kind of did fit into that world of like sort of warehouse techno, but didn't have a very like kind of strong grime influence. And I can't remember who had the idea of like getting an MC on it, but. I mean, I think really like Wiley was like who we wanted, really. I think like we kind of didn't really have a sort of um, a backup really because it just felt like, um, I don't know, if it, I don't know, it just felt right to have him as, you know, such a kind of innovator of the scene. And But I mean, to be honest, we weren't really sure if he was going to be up for it or not. We're quite surprised, but very pleasantly surprised he was up for it and... Um, hmm. Yeah, I think the kind of yeah. the link as well with Wiley is just from the whole jungle side of things because the the even though it's a techno track, the kind of a lot of the pad sounds and everything, percussion is very much referenced from jungle, and that's how Wiley started, and that was the kind of you know what Grime developed out of. So it just made sense for him to you know if we were going to get an MC on it, it had to be Wiley, and luckily it worked out. I think if it had been anyone else, we wouldn't have done it. I mean, one thing that stands out about it is that, um, you know, he says some really interesting things in the lyrics. He could have just done a kind of wearing my Rolex thing, which is just like, you know, really good, but just like kind of empty lyrics and like club lyrics or whatever, where he's actually gone and said some really just like important things about grime and how he feels about the scene and stuff. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it fits with the track. It could very easily, as you're saying, could very easily have kind of been a bit of a shit show. But, you know, if it had been, we wouldn't have put it out. So, But we think there is merit to it. It's quite an interesting tune. And what he's saying is, you know, works. You know, it's interesting to hear. So You, you mentioned that in the press release, I mean, Alto was meant as an exploration of many sounds, moods and influences. I wonder if you could just touch on a few of the records that kind of inspired this. I guess a lot of it, a lot of the tracks are quite inspired by Belgian techno sound, basically. It's like a lot of the classic like electronic acts or so electronica acts as they sort of got lumped into from like the nineties, like like Orbital particularly. I think on the the um Ingrid is a hybrid single, Orbital a big influence on that. Like I don't know, acts that kind of like to push boundaries a bit, I think quite influenced by the first uh, moderate album. It's quite a big influence. The use of vocals on that and kind of different textures and things. Future Sound of London as well, mm. even though they kind of sounds much more experimental, but the way they kind of bring 
a lot of different worlds together and make it sound really cohesive when you listen to their albums. It's definitely something that's kind of to aspire to. And uh, if you can achieve it, then it'd be great. I mean, because it's kind of dusky as you've never seen them before, I mean, how are you, how are you feeling about the reaction, about, about that, that day that the record finally launches? I feel fine about it. It's just, it's what it is. You know, once it's out there, there's nothing you can do about it. I think I'm, I'm quite happy with it. I think it's solid. Um, it was fun making it and hopefully people will get some enjoyment out of it. I don't think there's anything else to really worry about. <laughs> did you create the live show? I mean, did you create the kind of album first and then think about the live show or did they kind of happen at the same time? It was very much album first and then struggle to make it into a live show afterwards. Yeah. Um, I think if you set out writing music with you know those restrictions of how it's going to work in a live setting, then I don't think it would work for us in the way that we work. I think maybe if you're you know if you're if you have a whole kind of like fully hardware studio and then you're planning to like you know it's a very kind of jam based um, like tracky music, and you can just kind of transfer that into a club situation, then that makes sense. But the way our songs are arranged and stuff. Um, you know, you want it to work as a song primarily or as a track and then think about how it would work in a live setting afterwards or how you would recreate it. I think that's generally the way most electronic artists work in terms of live stuff. Obviously, if you're in a band, it's completely opposite. You know, you're just practising and practising on your instrument and, you know, through rehearsing together, that's how you build your songs and it's kind of much more of a you know much more of a thing in that sense but for it's quite two quite separate things for us in terms of the creative process did you um i mean what does the live show look like kind of what, what are you guys doing out there um basically have um it's all running off ableton on one computer so most of it's running off ableton um and then we have another laptop running main stage which has all the patches on it alfie's playing piano uh, and has like a MPD sampler, and then on my side is a um, some of the Aria gear, the Roland stuff, uh, TB3, TR8, uh, another sampler, um, controllers for Ableton, and then um, some uh, Strymon guitar pedals for effects, and that's essentially it. It's quite, it sounds quite a simple setup, but once you actually try and get it to yeah. work, um, it gets a bit more complicated. There's a lot of variables. Yeah, a lot of variables. But mm. I think it's something that's new to us and is exciting and interesting to do. In terms of, I mean, you've only done a few so far, but in terms of how you guys feel up there on the stage, how does it compare to DJing? Just bricking it, basically. Yeah. Well, you, you know, I, I, really, I really enjoy it. I think... But then in a way, I feel like maybe I've got the easy side of it because I grew up playing keyboards. And because of that, I think a lot of the time when those have laid down quite obvious keyboard parts in some tracks that a lot of time have played in. So there's like, you know, there's a piano track of ours for Yoohoo and that's just, I just sort of um, just can just play that live. Obviously, I've had to kind of get my fingers back up to scratch to what they were when I was kind of growing up playing piano. But I mean, it's funny because I thought, I'll maybe kind of switch it up quite a lot and sort of do a lot more kind of improvising, you know, changing the, the keys parts. But actually, I think kind of just uh, sometimes doing that in rehearsals didn't quite feel right. And I think people are going to want to hear the original parts. So when it's something so obvious, like a, you know, piano part. But yeah, I think in that sense, for me, it's kind of like I, I've been really enjoying it because it's sort of, I don't know, I can just sort of get, 
to enjoy like the actual performance and uh, and doing it sort of um, it's just very different to to DJing. Just a lot less yeah. time, I imagine. So. Mm. No, yeah, decision making. That's the thing because I started out DJing first before I got into production, and Alfie was the opposite. So for me, I quite like just you know making decisions on the fly about DJing and what we're going to play. Um, whereas the live show is very much like you have your thing to do and you have to do it correctly at the right times and kind of memorize it and just keep doing it over and over again. So it's very, very different to what I'm, you know, to what I've done in the past. So I think it was, I think it's going to grow on me, but it's definitely been quite a challenge. So is it, um, so is it the kind of same show every time or is it improvised? No, it's pretty much the same show because, um, we have uh, video and lighting stuff that goes along with it. So we did think, of, we, you know, we'll probably try and incorporate some sections into it where we can jam a bit in future. But so far, we've only had an hour, you know, to present it at festivals. And um, we've got quite a lot of music that we want to fit into that from the new album and some of the older tracks from us that people will want to hear. So it doesn't really allow for, you know, just a kind of us to noodle about on drum machine for half an hour yeah. even though that would be fun so is the plan to kind of do a massive live tour of the album i don't know about massive but we're definitely going to be touring the album doing live shows yeah but just in terms of like djing is going to kind of take a bit of... no not at all i think djing is our bread and butter really the live show is just a way for us to present the album in a different way than we've done before and it's something new for us to experiment with and try and see how we get on with it. I think DJing's always going to be there. That's you know we enjoy that as equally as much. So going back to the album, you Alfie, you contributed vocals to a track called Marble. Um, is that something you've done before? I have done it once before in the past on our first album actually. Uh, we'll stick by this, which kind of went a little bit under the radar because it was the first thing we ever did as Dusky, but. Yeah, it's still quite a new thing for me, singing, and uh, it didn't involve a lot of uh, studio tweaking. I have to admit, I'm not like a trained singer, so I didn't. It's definitely I'm not a one take wonder. Yeah, it's it's fun to. Um, it's definitely uh, felt right to sort of have a go. I mean, just laid it down as a demo at first, not necessarily thinking that it was going to be me singing on the final version, but it seemed to have worked out and. Uh, yeah, so I mean, you got this album which is kind of moving away from the kind of, you know, just more club-focused EPs and stuff you've been doing. And you've got this new live show. I mean, is the idea to kind of still be balancing kind of bigger shows with with like smaller club gigs and still to kind of be doing both? Yeah, definitely, definitely. It's nice to have a bit of variety in your work, isn't it? You know, sometimes it's fun to play on a big festival stage and other times you just hate it and you just want to go and play in a dark club to 100 people and you know do extended sets i think if you just do one thing we're not you know we're not going to turn our back on that at all we enjoy it it's like what we've grown up on what we love so obviously you know if the album uh, is a success and there's more demand for the live show then you know we'll do as much as we can but we're definitely not going to turn our back on djing at all are you guys do you, is it important for you guys to always be pushing yourself and trying new things and taking on projects and challenging yourself yeah, I mean, if you didn't, then you would just get bored, wouldn't you? But, you know, you could easily just, just stay DJing and be doing really well and release great EPs. And... Yeah, I mean, I think on the DJing side, I sort of see that as quite different in a way to to what it's like in the studio. 
I think by definition, DJing, you know, we're, we, you're always playing new music all the time. So there's always difference, you know, because like, you know, like from week to week, you know, you get sent different tunes. So you play, you know, you're playing a totally different set. Whereas in the studio, you know, that's when it becomes, I think, I think both of us just get bored quite quickly. So that's why we kind of like to try out different, like production techniques and you know use different bits of equipment software and things like that so things on the production side that yeah that more applies that kind of probably going to keep trying new things and wanting to do that because I think yeah as Nick says you just, just get bored otherwise you mentioned the first album there um, it's interesting that yeah that was your first record you released um, which is not kind of not often, doesn't often happen um, how do you feel about that album now yeah, I haven't actually listened to it in full for a, for a little while. I mean, yeah, still look back on it and um, pleased with it. I think like um, we took a similar approach in terms of it, kind of wanting it to most of it to work well on a dance floor, but also you know be as much of a, a kind of listening experience as um, as much as a dance floor record. But yeah, there's definitely some good moments there. I mean, yeah, again, it's kind of. It's definitely a lot more varied stylistically than the kind of um, everything we've done since then up to this album, you know, and our kind of EPs. There were some different tempos there and things like that. But yeah, I mean, I should just go and listen to it again, actually. I haven't listened to it in ages. Yeah, I try really not to listen to stuff that we've made really after it's done. I kind of put it to one side, yeah. unless you have to play it in DJ sets. But, you know, it kind of, it feels like of that moment when you're making it and then that's the enjoyment for me is that's your process of making the music I don't really want to go back and listen to it and kind of you know pick holes in it about you know oh I'm you know I'm pleased with that or oh, why the hell do we do that you just beat yourself up about it it's better just it is what it is leave it and just work on something new yeah I suppose with the club tracks as well you listen to them enough kind of in their own environment that you know because um it was interesting that um I interviewed Lone and he said that he really enjoys listening to his own music, you know, because he's like, I make this music for myself, kind of first and foremost, almost. And, you know, no one kind of likes it more than me. So, which is interesting because you never really hear artists say that. It's either like, it's either they hate it or they're so sick of it because they've, they've had it in their heads. For you so do long. have that when you're in the process of making a track, you know, as it's coming towards the end and you'll listen to, the, listen to it over and over again in headphones or you listen to it in different places, partly because you're really enthused about it and you you know you're excited about the music and then partly because you're working on the mix and stuff and you're trying to gauge how it's going to work and you want to make tweaks to it but that's the time when I listen to it the most is in the process of making it afterwards I don't really tend to listen to it personally as well it's like there are some sometimes I'll start an idea and I'll just kind of be I don't know if we're you know we're not working to a, a deadline or anything like you know recently we have been with with the album but um when I haven't been, sometimes there'll be times where I just sit down and try and write something on a total blank canvas and actually it ends up going in a direction that's actually is just for my own listening, really. I sort of think there's a certain point where, well, actually, this doesn't really, you know, I don't I don't know if other people are going to kind of appreciate this, but, you know, I'll follow it through. And that, so there are times when I do just, it is a purely, you know, making it just purely for, I don't know, my own enjoyment kind of thing. And then that then that your secret drill core <laughs> alias that yeah. no one knows about. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so will you guys work on ideas separately? Yeah, we do so more now because we're travelling a lot. So um 
we'll just start ideas on our laptops kind of thing and then when we get back from tour we'll just share the ideas in the studio and, and just, you know this is good this is bad we'll try and then try and build stuff out like that but when we were first starting out we weren't gigging as much we would sit in the studio together and um, work on ideas like that and now in our studio we've got to we've got a booth and a kind of main room so you know while one of us is working on the track in one in the main room like the other one can be in the other room jamming on ideas or you know going through promos and stuff like that so you had to get a bit more kind of like efficient about the way we work rather than just both of us kind of sitting around all day just noodling and you know <laughs> but that is fun as well we do do that from time to time but we don't get as much time to do that anymore so how has um the way you work together changed since that first album to the, the new one i think probably because i'm from more of a production background and engineer background now is more from a uh, musical composition background um during the first album that was much more those kind of roles were much more distinct but as we started you know as we worked together more we started to learn more off each other so those roles are starting to become more intertwined and i guess that's probably the biggest difference apart from the way that we start the ideas separately that's been the main thing that's changed in the process i think i imagine the kind of feedback process between you two is really important and that's kind of constantly happening yeah, exactly. I mean, you, you can't be precious about these things. I mean, that's like, you know, if I play an idea to Alfie and he says it's crap, I don't really care. I'll just start something else. Do you know what I mean? You can't be too, you, know, you can't be too precious about these kind of things. And equally, you know, you know, we value each other's feedback and it helps the creative process. You know, sometimes if you're just trying to build something by yourself, it's really difficult to see it through just like oh you know just want to bounce this off someone who has actually whose opinion you trust so like lucky to be in a position where we can work like that because i know some other people who work by themselves and they're constantly kind of beating themselves up about you know their ideas and even though they're brilliant but they just need someone to tell them that they're brilliant and then they're like oh oh yeah okay actually yeah maybe this is all right yeah yeah i mean you know from the way i work like just a tiny little confidence boost or just you know work wonders yeah, exactly. Or there's something, you know, when you listen to something over and over again, for like maybe for weeks or months, and you just start to lose sight of yeah. something which, you know, is integral to the track, and that's the important thing that you need to change. I mean, you lose sight of it, and you need someone to come in and just be like, oh, why don't you just take that out? It's kind of, you know, or just stick one of these, stick something in, and then and then you're just like, oh, right, realisation, and then it just, the whole the rest of the track just flows out. So, How long have you guys been working together? As, well, as... Celerity first, and then yeah. Um, since school, really, we met at Sixth Form College in Camden. So, what year was that? That was like two thousand and one, I think. Yeah, when we yeah when we met, we were kind of um, both just starting to get into production and going out raving and stuff. And so it was just a kind of shared interest in music and like enjoyment of going out raving and um, and de like DJing. So, um, and it all just built from there, really. It was just much more of just working together for fun. And then it slowly, slowly kind of started to develop into like kind of full-time working relationship. But, you know, first and foremost, we're just mates from school. Yeah. I mean, so, so that would make it kind of 15-year anniversary this year. Yeah, it's crazy. You going to celebrate at all? <laughs> <laughs> have a romantic dinner. <laughs> we do have quite a lot of uh, kind of like mandates while we're away on tour, it's so true. I think we've got that covered. <laughs> I don't think we need to do any more. I mean, what is the secret to you know? Because you are a duo, and you know people say don't work with your mates and business and pleasure, etc. I mean, what is what? How do you make it work so well? 
um, I think you just don't really see it as business. I mean, it's just our hobby, which we're both into. That's the basis for it. You know, we're just mates and we have the same interests. So we just literally just get to do our hobby full time. And that's, I think that's why it works. Yeah. I mean, I think it was a gradual process as well because it was a long time, you know, up from, you know, when we met, it was a long time till we actually released music properly on like a record label. And then, and even from that, it was a while before we were like, okay, let's try and like do this properly as a career, you know, and the thing. And that, so we had a bit of time then to kind of, you know, we do some shows together and then like a little bit of touring. And I think through that kind of just learned how to like what, I don't know, learned what riles each other up and things like that, you know, and like how not to push each other's buttons kind of things like that. So I think how we've just been like thrown in there, I think, and it, it, if everything had kicked off quite quickly, then it, I don't know, we might just be, might just hate each other by now. But I think because it's quite a gradual, you know, process, I think, yeah, seem to still get on all right. <laughs> yeah, that's it, you know, but if we're not away on tour, you know, if we've got a weekend off, we'll still meet up and go to the pub. Do you know what I mean? It's not like, right, see you later, you know, see you in a couple of weeks, you know, at Heathrow kind of thing. I think that would be quite weird if you're in that kind of working relationship. I mean, at least, you know, compared to the way that we work, I think I would find that quite strange. Do you think it's also important to have separate lives? Yeah, well, we, we've, we've got all the same mates. You know I mean, we, we, you know, we, we grew up in London. We still live here, you know, my brother lives around the corner, my sister lives around the corner, all my friends live in the same area, so maybe it is important to have separate lives, but I mean, our lives are pretty kind of intertwined in terms of our friendship group, um, but it's not a problem, and it's fine, yeah. So, Camden Town 2001, I mean, what were the raves that you were going to, what was, what was, what was going on in the club scene back then? We were going to Bagley's quite a lot, to stuff like United Dance, One Nation, Big drum and bass raves, and then garage stuff at Turn Mills. And then I used to live up by Ali Pally in Muscle Hill, so they used to have, do big raves there, like Sidewinder and One Nation again. So we used to break into Ali Pally through the toilet window and go to the big raves up there. So that was that was that was one of my weekend pastimes, you know, breaking into Ali Pally to go to to go raving. Yeah, mostly drum and bass ones, I think, but occasional hardcore ones as well, and like. Some like old school, like rain dance and things like that would be old school hardcore. But there'd be like proper like 180 BPM hardcore ones. I remember going to like, what was it, was Elation? It? Yeah, Electra, future, future dance stuff future like that. Dance. Yeah, but it was yeah. all a mix of stuff. There was so much good stuff going on, you know, that we were kind of cutting our teeth in terms of finding out what we were really interested in. So, you know, that's what's great about living in London. You can go to all these different clubs and see all this amazing music. You know, you can go to a different style rave every you know every night of the week if you want and at the time Bagley's as well you know it wasn't just drum and bass rave it'd be drum and bass room then like a jungle room then old school hardcore room and then downstairs would be garage so there's always a bit of variety in even within like one rave but you don't seem to have those clubs anymore in London like kind of four or five room sprawling club where you can have you know so many different things going on now it's much more concentrated in you know places like Fabric where obviously they have to keep the music policy a certain way to, to make it work. You know, you don't have that freedom that they used to have or seem to used to have. I mean, maybe I'm just out of the loop and I don't know where the good spots are, but <laughs> definitely feels quite different in that sense. You know, you know, you can't really go to raves which have that, so, you know, side trance room, then like a, a chill out room, then like a acid techno room and then, you know, drum and bass and stuff. It doesn't, that's more of a festival thing now. So you guys were, um, 
So you were both DJing when you met? Yeah. And mm. you kind of DJs on the house party circuit? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> around Kentish Town. Like, yeah. And from there, you started making tracks together and just kind of just grew from there. Yeah, I was started out kind of making like really kind of shit hip hop tunes on uh, Fruity Loops. Because when I first got into DJing, I was speaking to hip hop, and those are the first records I bought stuff like Executioners or Turntablist style stuff like Pete Rock and CL Smooth. So I was really interested in that, and that's, you know, I wanted to make hip hop kind of thing. And then kind of, as I started going out raving, I was just like, oh yeah, I want to make some dance music. I'm not that interested in making hip-hop anymore. I was enjoying going raving so much and uh, then getting into DJing drum and bass and stuff more. So yeah, that's how it developed, really. So how did you get from that point to making the kind of proggy house of Solarity? That was kind of... I was at uni studying music production in Brighton and then Alfie came down. We used to kind of meet up and make tunes. At the time, we were making kind of breakbeat and garage and drum and bass, just whatever. It was all just for fun kind of thing. And he played me this tune, Eric Prid's 1984 remix. Yeah, Paolo Mojo thing. And um, I'd never really been interested in house music. I was like, everything's got to have like a breakbeat or it's got to be two-step or whatever. You know, I wasn't really that into kind of 4-4 stuff at that point. But then I just I just thought, yeah, this sounds really fresh and interesting and I'm up for giving it a go. It sounds like it'd be fun to try and make. And then we just we're just doing it for fun. Uh, there wasn't really a scene for it at all, especially not in the UK. I think probably the only people that were listening to our music were like kind of people in Russia playing like Total Wipeout or something. I don't know. There definitely wasn't a kind of scene like there is for house music now in London. Do you know I mean, people weren't really interested in that style of like quite deep progressive house at that point. It just wasn't a thing. Do you know what I mean? So we were just writing it, but not really playing that many shows. It was just purely for fun. And then eventually got one of the tracks got picked up by um, Anjuna Deep, which is how that whole relationship kind of grew. And you know, and and then that went on to be the first. And after that was the first Dusky album. So you guys were kind of collaborating together, even though you're in kind of separate cities and separate universities. Yeah, because I mean, I was doing big house parties down in Brighton. You know, yeah. So then. people would come down. Well, my mates would come down from London to come to the parties because we had a whole house and we could do whatever the you know, we could do whatever we wanted kind of thing for the first time. It's like, you're not, you're not trashing your parents' house. I mean, you can rent a proper sound system, put it in the basement of a house and, you know, and piss off the neighbours and you can just get away with it. It was great. Yeah. But also we were both studying music at the time. So it made sense to just on the weekends to like come and, because I remember as well trying out, like, you know, you could use the facilities on the studios on the weekends and stuff. And over the summer when like no one would be there, I remember like, yeah, coming into the downstairs basement studio at my, where I was and um, using all their gear but back then a lot of it was just kind of um, it was just a sense of just like doing it messing around for fun there was never any plan there was never any kind of like feeling of oh let's finish this track so we can like release it put it out on a record label or anything like that it was just totally just like oh do you want to come and hang out you know we can just whatever there was kind of no one, no influences where, or no people in your life where like that was happening to them. They were releasing music. It just, it didn't seem like a kind of progression. Not really. I'm trying to think. I, so think. I feel like today, because the internet, it's just like, it's just more known, you know? It's like there's like, there are steps you go up and like SoundCloud, X amount of plays, da 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 da. Back then, maybe you're just messing around and one day, you, like, someone sends you an email being like, I like this. Or, yeah, exactly. I think that was kind of, I think they heard it. I think the Anjuna, Pete, Anjuna Deep people heard it through some kind of, I don't know, Russian 
like trance podcast or something. I don't know. <laughs> but and then we just got a call from James Grant, who runs Anjuna Deep, and was like, "Oh, this track's really cool. We want to, we want to put it out." So that's yeah. It wasn't. We didn't really know that many people who were putting out music at the time. So I'm a bit hazy about what the internet was like in those times. I mean, it, obviously, it wasn't as advanced as it is now. <laughs> but um. yeah, it's really slow dial up. No, it wasn't that bad. But it was like it was like MySpace era kind of thing. Like early MySpace era, I suppose. That was well, that's when was. we first started releasing stuff. Though. Yeah, it's probably before then. There was music going back and forth on like LimeWire and Napster and stuff, but there wasn't. And there were some forums and stuff, but I didn't really go on them. It's like big drum and bass forums. Yeah, it wasn't like we went. No, no one bought music on online. It was all still vinyl kind of thing. You know, we were still buying records, going to the record shops every every Thursday around Camden to like know-how and places like that. Yeah, it wasn't the same. Like the kind of whole beatport culture didn't exist at all. I mean, knowing what you know now about the internet and just everything that comes with it, do you feel like it was an advantage, kind of happening in its early stages? Then, yeah, I mean, in, from in terms of learning how to DJ, I think definitely helped learning vinyl, and uh, you know, and also valuing music in the sense of you know you've only got you've got a certain amount of money. To spend on records and you go there and you sit there for two or three hours and you come out with two records rather than just being like oh yeah I'll, you know i don't really like that but i'll just buy it because it's only 50p or whatever and you just get a load of crap and then you listen to it afterwards you're just like why did i just buy all these tunes i should have just you know gone record shopping and just bought two tracks and they would you know you keep playing them for you know six months rather than just something you're going to play for a week and then and then discard it so from that perspective it's definitely um positive thing when it was just more about just record shopping and not so um, it's, it's quite difficult to find music online I find it quite hard it's just too much there do you know what I mean when it was when it was just you know you trust the guy behind the counter at the record shop and you come in he'll, be, he'll know what you're interested in listening to and it just yeah it was just much easier and more enjoyable from my perspective I mean obviously now you must buy a lot of music online and obviously you get sent a lot I mean what are your filters for kind of Finding the good stuff. The best stuff tends to come from people that we know now, and we just have they just we just get it sent it direct on emails, you know. And someone's like, "I'll just finish this thing and send it over," and then so that I don't know that just tends to be the, the stuff that gets most excited, you know. Um, and then yeah, just through the kind of promo systems, um, but yeah, just still trawl a lot through like through Beatport and and Juno and there are all sorts really. Just kind of, um, I think you you have to dig deep, and it takes a long time. You kind of have to find the like diamonds in the rough. So it's a very time-consuming process, especially on Beatport. There's just so much, so much crap out there. That you have to sift through. <laughs> but there is there's stuff there, and that's that feeling as well when you find a track that like you feel like it's gone under the radar a bit, and you're not, you know, because you can see on the internet, you, you Google it, and you realise like no one's no one's been playing this. Like, why not? Like, this is a great track. That's an amazing feeling finding that, and then and then playing it out and it getting a good reaction. Yeah, it's it's pretty good. Yeah, and there's also certain labels that you know you can trust, and artists that you'll look for. Do you know what I mean? If you if you if you're looking on Beatport, I'll just have my saved labels, and I'll just check those. And generally, don't really look at anything else. <laughs> If I'm honest, but yeah, and a lot of stuff through promo. Yeah. Do you ever go back for your own record collection and rip old vinyl and play them? Most of it's drum and bass and garage, so oh, we don't really actually play that much. We don't right, play. Yeah. I can't remember the last time I played a drum and bass set. And also, we're playing less and less kind of garagey sounding stuff. 
over the past couple of years. So um, if we do rip stuff, it will normally be new tracks that we've bought from the record shop, which you can't get digitally kind of thing. And we'll rip those and then just play them digitally because we don't travel around with vinyl. It's just too much of a ball ache. Do you feel like learning to DJ drum and bass? I think, I think what it taught me a lot about was just learning your records and taking time to, you know, understand how the tracks are arranged and, you know, knowing where you want to mix it kind of thing and taking time to do that. Because if, you know, with drum and bass, if you mix a tune at the wrong point, then it can sound really, really bad, you know, and you need to test a lot of tunes out because you know, the beats can be so hectic that some stuff just won't work together. It will just sound too messy. So stuff like that, you know, from that perspective, learning your tunes and taking time to really understand the tracks that you've bought helps in that sense. But, you know, the quick mixing style, I don't really do that anymore, but it's not really suited to the way that we play or the music that we play now, but it's just another kind of string to your bow, isn't it? I don't know. I haven't played drum bass for so long. I probably struggle a little bit now. I have to go back and have a practice a bit. I mean, do you feel like it's more difficult, DJ drum and bass? There's definitely some clangers, definitely more, more, more chance of clangers, but... I wouldn't say it's more difficult. It's just you have, just have to practice. I mean, maybe it's a case of like, you know, I remember there's always that uh, story of Pele used to do kick-ups with like a, a melon. <laughs> so when it comes to football, like, you know, you're laughing. I always say his feet are more delicate, yeah. yeah. Well, I think for learning uh, to mix more than it being drum and bass was learning on belt drive sound labs where nothing stays in time kind of thing. So that learning how to kind of keep two tracks in time for a decent amount of time on belt drive turntables definitely helps with your beat matching but that's not really what it's all about it's more about your tune selection the time you spend looking for music so so in 2011 you put out stick by this which is your debut album as dusky i mean what kind of led to the decision to stop being celerity and and switch over to something new okay it was about halfway through the process of making that album i think we stopped and looked at the music that we had and we were working with doing it on Angina Deep and it was them that pointed out at the time, you know, suggested us doing an alias because it was quite different to all the, the previous stuff we'd done. But it was just quite a sort of snap decision at the time. We were just kind of like, oh yeah, probably, yeah, maybe we should. Thing. Um, but I mean, we did take quite a while. I remember like trying to like choose a name and, you know, like, like work out a, a logo, things like that. We did deliberate over a lot. Yeah, it, I don't know, it just kind of made sense, really. I think, like, yeah, the sound at the time had become so removed from the celerity stuff, it just just made sense. So was it a reflection of your tastes changing? Yeah, a taste, but also just, like, you know, I was saying before about wanting to try different production techniques, you know, I think that's something, you know, we were starting to just change the way we, change the way we were making music, you know. So all sorts of different changes, like the way um, the beats were made, more of a kind of old sort of sampled kind of feel of kind of older house tracks things like that um so yeah lots of changes you know going from that stuff to the first celerity tracks we're doing like hold on this is yeah it's totally different and once the album was done that kind of felt like you know this is a new chapter we're leaving that old stuff behind yeah yeah definitely you know after that album got kind of picked up on bbc a bit and people were playing it and then we started to get gigs before with the celerity stuff. We were just kind of putting it out and not really playing out very much. And it was just a kind of labor of love in a way. There was no way we were ever going to make a living out of it kind of thing. So after that album kind of got some momentum, we started getting some bookings and we were like, you know, we should pursue this because it's fun. And uh, 
and it sort of kind of developed from there. After the album, we had a couple of tracks, one on Dogmatic on Alex Arnout's label, Taito Alba, and that was getting played quite a lot by Jamie Jones and that kind of crew of people who um, previously, you know, wouldn't may, might not have been interested in the first album because that was more of the kind of buffer between what was Solarity and then what became Dusky. And then after that album, it was more just, all right, let's just focus on making some club tracks because we're getting these bookings now, we need some music to play. And yeah, so we just kind of got on that that tip of just making club EPs and the momentum just kind of started to build from there. What kind of shows were you playing just in the UK? Yeah, mostly UK, like student-style gigs. This was at the time, it was when dubstep just sort of dropped off the edge of a cliff. Right. Um, and no one... You know, knew what was going on. It was kind of post dubstep era where people were playing a lot of garage and what's become future garage, I suppose. And then and then stuff started moving more housey after that. So it was around that kind of period. So it was a mix of parties, really. Some more kind of like I suppose like classic uh, house music promoters and other stuff would be like bass music promoters, people who are moving, who used to book dubstep but were now kind of moving on to something new because there wasn't really a demand for it. So it was a mix of stuff, but yeah, mostly UK. And was that transition into kind of playing regular shows pretty easy? I mean, you had so, so much experience DJing before that. Yeah, it was it was good. It was fun. Yeah, it was like, you know, people were paying us to go to clubs. It was amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Drinking for free. It was like, you know, we got a bit overexcited about that at the start for a few gigs, definitely. <laughs> yeah, free booze. Yeah. Oh, God, get through this bottle of vodka. I can't take it on the plane on the way back. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah, having that, having that kind of luxury for the first time was definitely kind of um, a bit dangerous for our health. But then after we realised that you don't need to, you know, drink your whole rider every time you go to a gig, then yeah, I imagine your attitude towards right. that has changed a little bit. Yeah, definitely, <laughs> definitely. Um, you mentioned Dogmatic there, and in 2012 you put out Flow Jam, which is kind of probably when I first heard of you, um, and I imagine a lot of people the same. Um, does it? definitely feel like kind of you can chart like Dusky before that and Dusky after that it's a kind of major shift I think for our booking certainly yeah. that's when we started to become actually busy yeah but I, I, it was it felt quite natural to us I mean I think probably from the outside people were like oh you know that's where you know that was how they started kind of thing but for us it was a very gradual process from you know even from when we started at school just making music all the way up to the point where we finished the album and had those Taito Alba and Flow Jam. But I guess it was because I think with Flow Jam, we got picked up by Lofa. He was playing it a lot on his Swamp show on Rinse. And um, at the time, that was like a real tastemaker show. You know, Lofa was the person that took the punt on stepping out of dubstep before everyone else. And he had a kind of head start, I suppose, in terms of, you know, the music that he was pushing and um, what he was playing was quite ahead of everyone else so people would listen to his swamp show to see you know what's what's the interesting stuff that's going on so that was a massive boost for us you know having that kind of seal of approval from Lofa definitely helped to take our name out to more people than you know than we had had before through the Tito Albert release on uh, on Dogmatic before. And you mentioned Lofa there that's kind of one end of the spectrum in terms of who was playing it, and at the other end there's like Calvin Harris, famously, which is amazing. And I doubt he's played a tune like that for the last five years, <laughs> years, you know. Yeah, I know, it's it's strange, but, you know, that's that's what kind of part of what we were saying earlier about, you know, what do you do once uh, once you put the album out, how do you feel about it? And it's just, you've literally got no control over it. You know I mean, 
Calvin Harris might pick it up and start playing it in his sets, in which case everyone's going to be like, oh, I don't, you know, I don't like this anymore. It's not cool, whatever. But, you know, you have no control over it. you just got to put it out there. And, like, Flo Jam was one of those ones that just seemed to have a wide reach and a lot of people were into it, which was great for us. And it's definitely a boost to our career at the time. Oh, you mentioned there that um, you guys kind of uh, landed, started doing a dusky thing. Um more seriously, when dubstep was kind of fading away, when it, when it completely dropped away, do you feel like you kind of really hit a kind of sweet spot in terms of timing? Yeah, I think that was just pure luck. Like, it wasn't anything planned at all. It was just, it was just the kind of, it was just the kind of shift, wasn't there? And the kind of musical zeitgeist at the time was just like, you know, dubstep had become this bastardized kind of American trashy stuff that you know the people that were originally interested in dubstep, especially in London, you know. It, pretty much born no, no no relation to it whatsoever so um yeah people just lost interest and we were just there at the right time it was pure pure just pure luck as an artist can you get a sense of what it's like to be in the kind of eye of the storm like in terms of like as something's really taking over i wasn't really that conscious of it at the time i think looking back you think oh yeah yeah actually this was kind of you know there was a lot of stuff of stuff popping off you know for us and for other artists kind of who were quite similar to us at the time, like George Fitzgerald and Huxley and Bicep Guys and Midland, Pearson Sound, kind of all the house camp. That was like a real like big time for all of us looking back. But at the time you're just kind of going with the flow and you're not really thinking about it. I mean I wasn't really thinking about it. I didn't have definitely didn't see it as oh wow, like we're in you know we're in the middle of this really hype kind of scene or whatever. I just, just didn't even cross my mind. Now I look back, I think, oh, wow, that was actually quite an amazing time, but um, never thought about it. But there were no worries that, shit, the bottom could fall out of this as well. And I think you always have that kind of thought when you're self-employed in any kind of work, you know, whether it's music or anything else, you know, if, if you're a freelance journalist, stuff might dry up, you know, you have a speciality and, if, you know, if people aren't interested in it anymore you have to either adapt or move on to something else so it's a risk but I think we just concentrate on what we're interested in and um, and we enjoy and hopefully that kind of shows through in the music and that's all we can do I think if you uh, overthink it and worry about oh you know the bottom's going to drop out of this and try and change what you're doing just to, to work to that then that's not a good way to to approach things uh, in terms of the sound that you guys were making then i mean you're yeah incorporating uh, a lot of rave influences and bits of hardcore how are you doing that were you just taking samples from old records you had or it was mostly all just done on since bit later after flow jam there's some tracks that would be actually sampling old um drum and bass tracks not an intern things like that oh yeah intern but more just vocal stuff not in not pads and pace and everything like that we kind of it's all just done through synthesis but vocal stuff definitely is sampled out of old tracks yeah because you guys don't really use hardware no no it's all in the box it was interesting actually because we were having a conversation we met matthew herbert the other day on a gig in dublin and we were talking about the differences of you know how we were spoiled growing up on in an age where you know software production um, and how he had to start out, you know, buying like a £3,000 sampler and, um, you know, it was much more difficult to produce or to have the means to produce when he started out. But he mentioned the thing that we were most spoilt with and that was having the recall, so being able to call up any track you want, you know, off a digital system which never existed before. And that is a massive part, 
in the way that we work, you know, because we'll have maybe 20 ideas going at the same time, always be working on something, messing about. And if you get bored of it, we'll just open up another track and it's just all instantly there. Whereas in the past, that was never possible. So, uh, yeah, that's, uh, you know, a massive benefit of working in that software world. You don't have, you know, it's, you don't have that issue with having to recall tracks or, you know, set, lay everything out on a desk and write everything down on paper kind of thing. So, yeah, it just it works really well for us and that's what we've grown up on. That's what, you know, that's what we enjoy. So we haven't really felt the need to kind of branch out into, you know, investing in lots of hardware at the moment. It's just the way our workflow is on software works fine for us. Mm. And also we're traveling all the time, just being able to start ideas on our laptops and then just plugging it in, but then also taking that away again on tour, you know, we could tweak it in the studio, but then take it back on the road with us and then tweak it on the go. I think that's really important as well, you know, with the way we work, which we wouldn't be able to do if we, uh, yeah, use loads of hardware. Yeah, I think hardware, from my perspective, if I, if I was going to invest in it, it would purely be from a point of trying to um, inspire some ideas. You know, sometimes if you are sitting there clicking the mouse and you feel a little bit, kind of, oh, I just need to do something else. At the moment, I'll just go out and go for a walk or whatever. But I could see myself buying some hardware and I'll just like noodle around on that for a bit and maybe some ideas will start. But I don't think I'm going to kind of reinvent the way we're working and move over to hardware. It's just unnecessary. Yeah. Alfie, with your kind of more traditional musical upbringing, and you mentioned you play piano mm. growing up and stuff, you didn't feel that that was felt more natural to kind of be actually playing stuff. And I don't know. It's weird. I mean, I guess because, as I mentioned before, that I do so much of the stuff playing on the keyboard anyway. So that's quite a tactile thing a lot of time anyway. So yeah, I don't really like like when we go on tour sometimes when it's just totally focusing on the on the laptop and having to use the like laptop keys to put in notes I, I really hate that way of working but I guess because half the time my kind of way of working is having one hand on the keyboard anyway and like you know messing about when I'm doing um working out parts that you can play on keyboard not for drums or anything but I guess um yeah perhaps there's less kind of uh, desire or need for me to kind of have that 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 hardware kind of you know tweakable kind of um yeah features and yeah tweaking knobs and stuff like that it's more to do with the sound though as well rather than the kind of having some knobs to tweak because if you want you can just buy a midi controller and assign everything off the software to that if you really want you know things like machine essentially you're working with hardware um it's all software based so you can you can do that if you want I think, you know, what's interesting about hardware is the way it sounds rather than kind of, you know, being able to twiddle some knobs. Mm. 